Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church, give, share a prayer request, or access our weekly worship guide, visit us at www.restorationlex.com slash this week. Let's just jump into our text today. As Hannah's saying, we're in the lectionary. We are in John chapter 12. We are a couple weeks away from, from the cross at this point. Look with me on the screen here. Or uh, if you have a Bible, have an app, whatever, just read along with us here. So starting John 12, verse 1, it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. So let's get some context here for where we are at. John chapter 11. If you've never read John chapter 11, it's an incredible, incredible passage about how Jesus walks into the the, the situation of Mary and Martha and, and Lazarus, some of his closest friends, and Lazarus dies, and Jesus weeps and then walks in those tears straight to the tomb and raises Lazarus from the dead. So John 12 starts right out of that after Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And what do they do? Well, they throw a party, as you naturally would. They have a dinner party. And that's what's happening here. There's a, there's a dinner party with Jesus' disciples, with Mary and Martha. It's at their house, and they're just celebrating, I would imagine, what, what just happened. I mean, can you imagine sitting at the table with someone who was dead just a few days ago? I'd be celebrating, right? I'd be more than celebrating at that point. And this is what's happening. And then also notice it says six days before the Passover. So this is the weekend before Jesus would be crucified. So if you're, you're thinking about the story and the format of what's happening, this is not one of those stuffy, formal affair sort of dinners that we see Jesus have with the Pharisees, religious leaders, or whatnot. This is more like a family reunion. There is laughter, there is wine, there is food laid into the night. It's a good party. But it's all interrupted. It's all interrupted by one of the most, I think, one of the most surprising moments in the gospel. And I think this moment is meant to, to jolt us. It's meant to disrupt our spiritual equilibrium. So let's keep reading here. It says, Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now this is a strange scene to to grapple with here. We're we're dealing with something that is incredibly disruptive. I don't know if you know what pure nard is. First thing I thought of was the office, nard dog, but that's maybe I'm the only one that did that. But this is something called Spike Nard, which would be a really good band name as well, Spike Nard. Um, Spikenard is a perfume, an exotic, luxurious perfume that came from India. So this would have not been something that they came by easily. 
Later on in the story, Judas actually says it's worth 300 denarii. That is almost a year's wages. A year's wages worth in this little jar of perfume. A lot of scholars think this was a family heirloom that was passed down from generation to generation to generation. This was a prized possession of not only Mary, but probably her entire family. And when you have this perfume, it's only used in small amounts for the utmost important occasions, usually weddings and funerals. But even then, you use it sparingly. I wonder why this perfume was handy to her in this moment. It's kind of weird to just have randomly perfume. Well, it's probably because she was ready just a few days ago to put that perfume on her brother Lazarus. But he's raised from the dead. And so here she is, she takes this thing of utmost value, she pours it on Jesus' feet. Mark, in his telling of the story, says it's an alabaster jar, and she shatters it to pour on the feet of Jesus. And, and when you're washing someone's feet, especially in that culture where you're wearing sandals, you're walking through mud and dirt and all kinds of stuff, washing feet was the job of the very lowest of servants. In fact, the next chapter over, we see Jesus... In the Last Supper, what does he do? He washes feet. It is the job of the lowest of low, but she stoops in this moment down and begins to wash her feet. Normally, it would be a towel and a, a basin of water, but this time, it's this perfume, and it's her hair. Now, a Jewish woman would very, very rarely reveal her hair undone in public, so this is a moment of incredible vulnerability incredible vulnerability before a group of people that I would be very self-conscious around. There is a tension that has entered this room in this moment. And I would imagine with all the, the wine and the dining and the fun and the laughter and the friendship, this would have caused everything to stop in its tracks. I can imagine the awkward silence that filled that room in a moment. And, and as a woman, Mary would have at that point no status in society whatsoever. And those, those of us who find ourselves in places where we are powerless in society, where whether it be by our, our gender, our racial heritage, or any number of cultural markers, that we are powerless. When you are in those positions where you are in the minority, you are always sort of code switching. You're always thinking, how am I being perceived? Because your perception, based upon those who have power around you, could be very, very, very costly. The last thing you want to do when you're powerless is make a scene. You don't want people to notice you. Because you live in a world where being noticed like this, being seen as crazy or overdoing it, you, you could bear a cost. Which makes this moment, I think, so much more astounding. Mary's attention in this point is so set on Jesus that the crowd just disappears. So focused on who is before her that the opinions and the thoughts of everyone around her are no longer present in this moment. If I'm honest, I'm used to having my attention on Jesus at best alongside of an awareness of the people around me. Alongside of the opinions of what everybody thinks about what I'm doing at any given moment. At worst, it can frequently disrupt it. 
I can be so focused on the opinions of other people, so focused on how I'm being perceived in the expressing of my faith that sometimes I may not be as attentive to Jesus as I want to be. I'm sure I'm not the only one in that, but I recognize that if I see some sort of crowd and I'm perceived in some sort of way, in my, in my flesh I know that that might be costly, might cost my reputation. And I want people to, to like me. I'm just being honest. I'm aware of how people perceive me when I'm expressing my devotion to Jesus. And sometimes I wonder, does it step in the way? And that's why Mary's boldness in the story is so challenging and so disruptive. It's worship, essentially. Eugene Peterson says that worship is the strategy by which we interpret our, or, or interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. I love that definition, worship being the turning of our attention away from our inward lives from who we are and turning it towards the presence of God. That's what Mary did in this moment. She did not just do this as a means of faith. She did this at a very high risk, something that is a sacrifice. Mary sacrificed with the pouring out of this perfume because she was standing in the presence of God. You see, no man is worthy of that devotion. No man is worthy of all of that sacrifice. Only someone who's found themselves on holy ground, only someone who has found themselves in the presence of God can find themselves internally turning their hearts in this extravagant worship. In worship that changes the environment of a room. In worship that shifts not only what you're doing because you're so focused on Jesus, it brings the room's attention to him. She sees something in this moment that even his closest disciples, who granted are walking with him day in and day out for three years, they do not see it. Mary sees something they can't see in this moment. You know, if you look through the Gospels at the disciples, you will never find. You will not find Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, a story of these men being so extravagantly, costly, courageously acting in worship like this woman Mary. The disciples most of the time look like idiots, which is comforting, right? Because a lot of the time I too look like an idiot as well. In fact, we see in her this response here from the disciples is, is the opposite. Let's keep reading. But one of his disciples, it says, Judas Iscariot, who would later betray him, spoiler alert if you haven't read that, objected, why hasn't the perfume been sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Man, John does not hold back. John throws a lot of shade right here. As keeper of the money back, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now, I, this may surprise you for me to say this as, as we're reading this passage, but, but Judas, what he's saying here, Judas, Judas was right. That could have helped a lot of people with that year's wages. Now, the average 
yearly income of someone in Kentucky is around $50,000. Now, I know we have a lot of nonprofit leaders and people who work with the poor, people who work with those in need, moms, all sorts of things. Let me ask you, how much could $50,000 do? A lot. Imagine, talk to any of the folks in our church that work in nonprofits and work with the poor in neighborhoods, all this sort of stuff. Ask them how much $50,000 would do. It would flip them out. If someone just gave you a year's wages, that's an incredible gift. It could do so much good. But while Judas was, was thinking in that way right, he wasn't right, was he? Judas's heart was not right. John is sure to remind us that it's that Judas, it's that one. And Judas, by most standards, what he's, what he's giving here is a good idea. He recognizes the value of this family heirloom, and he knows that it could be good. It could be worth something. It could, lots and lots of good could be done with this. Restoration family, I want you to know, as you read this, and don't, don't separate this, giving to and caring for the poor is an act of worship. Don't twist this story to mean something that it is not. Judas isn't wrong on that account. But Judas's heart is very wrong. I believe we're intended to contrast these two people in the story, Mary and Judas. Mary's worship at Cain with a cost, but you notice Judas's worship, though, he benefited from it. Mary's worship was, was unconcerned with her reputation, but Judas's worship was a public display of his own self-righteousness at the expense of this woman. Mary was worshiping Jesus, but Judas was, Judas was worshiping himself, right? Look how Jesus responds to this. He says, he says, leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, what is Jesus saying here? This is really important. Many years ago, as, as I was in ministry, probably 10, 15 years ago, I was preaching, and, and I preached this sermon on, on money and consumerism. It was around Christmas about how we focus on all the wrong things, and we just gather more and more and more and more stuff, and it doesn't make us happy. It doesn't fulfill us, and that's not what Christmas is about. And, and that week, I wasn't the lead pastor at this point of, of the church. I was, I was lower on the totem pole, as you, as you would say. That week, I got a call that a man was very angry, and he wanted to meet with me. And so... I was called into this meeting. You never know. You, you always, you've ever been in, called into a meeting where they won't tell you what it's about? Oh, those are the worst. So I'm called into this meeting, and we, we go into this quiet room, and this man just goes off about this. He goes off about what I said, talking about how I'm wrong to talk about consumerism, that, that wealth is, is fine, which it is. And he started talking about how Jesus was wealthy. And I'm like, I don't know how you read that into this, but we'll go with it. And what he used, though, in this moment, is his, in his anger, he says that Jesus said, remember, Jesus said, you will always have the poor among you. Now, in his mind, meaning that if you give unneeded attention to something you'll never, never ever be able to overcome, why would you do that? So why worry that much about the poor? Why give so much attention to these financial situations? Now, let me ask you guys, and this is not a hypothetical question. Do you think that that's what Jesus means? No. 
Of course he doesn't. What this man who called me into a meeting to get on me about did not realize, apparently, is that Jesus is actually quoting Scripture. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, which says, There will always be, be poor people in the land, but look what it says next. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Jesus was not being dismissive towards caring for the poor. That is not what's happening in this story. It's not what's happening in this passage. It's quite the opposite. Jesus is saying, you will always have the opportunity to care for the poor. You will always have the opportunity to give and to, to be compassionate towards those in need. But I'm here right now. I'm about to be crucified. You're going to have tons and tons of opportunity. Jo Judas spoke this. We talked about this a few weeks ago. He spoke this from a place of scarcity because Judas is essentially saying, if you don't use this on poor people, I don't know that there's going to be enough. It's a self-righteous declaration. But Jesus is moving from a place of abundance. Mary recognizes this abundance. The only way that you give the thing you have of greatest value and throw it at the feet of Jesus is because you know there's going to be enough, right? You know that there's always going to be enough to go around. Because God is a God of abundance. Judas lives from scarcity, but Mary knows in the presence of God there will always, 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 always be enough. There'll always be enough to go around. And when you know there's always enough to go around, you can give everything. You know, I've wrestled with this text this week and the implications of this. And if I'm honest, I can recognize that I see a lot of Judas in me. We're used to reading ourselves into the story as the heroes. You know, like when we read in Exodus and we're always the Israelites instead of Pharaoh. We read the, ex, you know, the exile and we're always Daniel and the lion's den. We're never Babylon. I'll be honest, when I read this this week, I just saw Judas in me. And what I, I sensed the Lord saying to me, and I think for us too, was but that we have to recognize the ways in which we've used the good against God. When we've taken the good and used it to avoid God altogether. Another way of putting this is that, that we become focused on what is Christian to the exclusion of Christ himself. Being focused on what outwardly looks like an expression of our faith, but we don't actually see and focus on the one who we put our faith in. What can this look like? It can look like being constantly, constantly busy in ministry to avoid the condition of our own soul. It can look like being devoted to Christian policies and politics in a way that keeps making us less and less and less like Jesus. It can mean letting our, our righteous anger towards injustice be an excuse for unrighteous treatment of our neighbors and our enemies. It could be like attending every, every worship service, every prayer night, every conference, every spirit-filled gathering that you possibly can week after week after week, but you still foster these unhealthy patterns and relationships. You worship every week, but you're still a jerk to everybody else. We're using the good to avoid God. All of it's Christian, and yet there is a noticeable 
tangible absence of Christ. But when you find yourself like Mary, when you find yourself in the presence of God, that's something altogether different. Look what happens when, when men and women find themselves in the presence of God in the Scriptures. When Moses, he's standing before the bur burning bush, what happens? He falls down on his knees. Elijah on the mountain, when he hears the whisper of God, he's on his face. Isaiah in chapter 6, trembling before the presence of God on the throne, repenting, saying, woe is me. Paul, literally being knocked off his high horse by the risen Jesus. John in Revelation just falls flat on his face every single time in the scriptures. We come into the presence of God. We fall on our faces. Nothing stays the same. And today, all those luminaries of the faith, Mary joins them. Because when she stands into the presence of God, when she moves and recognizes that when she stands in the same room with Jesus, this is God in flesh. I am in the presence of the holy God. What does she do? She offers everything she has. She falls down in this act of tears and devotion and love. Now, I want to take some time here as we close and talk about that. Talk about worship. Specifically, I want to talk about gathered worship, what we're doing here, gathering on Sundays to worship. Now, I, I know we, I, I don't have to keep saying this over and over. You, go, you know, uh, music is not worship. It's, it is an expression of worship. It is one of the ways we worship. It is not the totality of worship. Sunday morning is not worship. Worship is our lives turned towards God in every facet of our lives. That's what worship is. I don't have to theologically hopefully qualify that for everyone, but, but most of us here today, many of us have been in situations where we have learned the hard way how shallow and manipulative spaces like this can be, right? We know that that feeling in worship that we think is the presence of God can also be just a really good chord progression that moves us. I know from the cynicism of this conversations I've had, many of us have come out of difficult backgrounds where we have watched manipulation, where we have seen millions of dollars being poured into rooms and ideas and stuff to try to work up at least the feeling of the presence of God. And I'm not, listen, there's nothing wrong with lights and bells and whistles and, and, and big rooms and dark rooms and even fog machines. God's not, you know, horribly against fog machines that I know of. I haven't found a verse yet. But we, we know that it can very, very easily become something that it's not. I know this because I'm a former worship leader. I, I led worship for 15 years. And I remember this epiphany several years ago where one Sunday I'm, I'm leading worship and I'm literally spending my time planning and planning and planning and planning, planning the right songs, the right moments. Here's how many times we're going to build this up to this moment and everybody's going to think it's awesome. I'm putting together the sound and the stage and all of the, the stuff that's up there so the room when people get there, the room when people get to get there can be just incredible, an incredible environment, an experience. I love using that word, an experience. It's not just a service, it's an experience. And the next day, 
I left for India for two weeks to teach some pastor classes over there, two different parts of India. And not many days from that, I was preaching in a service in a room maybe a third of the size of this, a building without, literally without walls, just a roof over top. And there's a man with an old-school Casio keyboard, the kind that most of our kids have probably had at some point, and a plastic guitar. And they're leading worship, and my friends, they are ushering this in. I mean, the presence of God in this room was so thick. And I entered into this preaching and thinking, I just spent all of my time and energy trying to create what these two men with a Casio keyboard and a plastic guitar are doing without all the things I'm giving my attention to. And I came back, and I'll be real honest with y'all, it messed me up. It messed me up. And I'm still messed up from it, to be quite honest. I came up and my heart was, was upended. I saw that it I didn't need these things. They weren't necessarily wrong or evil, but the presence of God could move in places where the presence of God was expected, was experienced because people came to be with God and not just hypothetically around him in the peripheral. Listen, I know we rightly reject emotionalism. We rightly reject sensationalism. The idea that that worship has to be big and emotional. It has to be lots of hands raised and jumping and crying and singing, all of that stuff. We reject that that is what worship has to be, that it has to be a spectacle, that it has to be flowing out of something big and giant. We all reject that, and rightly so. But I wonder, I wonder sometimes, I wonder this week if in rejecting those things, the fear of the excesses of what we can be as a church, I wonder if we've unintentionally created barriers to experiencing the presence of God and trying not to be the distortion, we've become the overreaction and the distortion itself. In the sense that I wonder if we don't come expecting to experience the presence of God, that we don't come experiencing expecting that the extraordinary can happen in the ordinary. That the supernatural can be experienced in the natural, in spaces like this, in relationships like this. I wonder, I wonder if even in my own leadership, if there's been times where I have allowed cynicism and allowed things that are hurtful in the past to drive environments and spaces like this to where we don't realize that like Mary, we're in the presence of Jesus. And he's worthy of taking those things of greatest value and throwing them on the ground at his feet. I don't want to be so scared of the big and the experiential that we reject experiencing the presence of God altogether. Does that make sense to you? And so, where I have led in that way, I just, I just sense the need this week to repent of that, to repent of, I don't want to let cynicism about worship be a barrier to worship. I want to come into rooms like this expecting God to move. 
expecting God to move. And I want to close with two words. Two words that I want to challenge us in as individuals and as a church family that I want to begin to grow in again. The first thing is expectancy. I want to grow as a church in expectancy. That Sunday we come expecting that God is already present and at work, and that God is ready to move in powerful and tangible ways, that when we gather in a room like this, we're not gathering with God far away, but God is here, present among us. We are like Mary at the feet of Jesus. And I don't want to be so concerned with what the crowd thinks about me, around me. I don't want to be concerned by how undignified I look as I am pouring out my heart to God. I don't want to be concerned about my emotions being too much because I'm experiencing Him. And I don't want other people to think I'm this way or that way. I want all of us to come expecting the presence of God to move in our midst and then to be open to that. And the second word is out of that and that's just surrender meaning that as we expect God's spirit to move in our midst that we lay down those things that are the barriers to our expectation that are the barriers to our focus on the God who is in front of us so it's laying down self-righteousness and a fear of rejection it's allowing those walls to be dismantled and to come with open hands in the presence of God and say, here, here, Lord, this is me. This is the best. I'm giving you the best of me, the all of me, the, the fullness of what I can be, God, the fullness. I'm not here to, to be manipulated. I'm not here to, to allow myself to put up walls. Lord, you have control. I come to God on God's terms. I come to God as, as God not the figment of the imagination of what I want to experience, but the living God is here. So Lord, you have my heart, you have my, my past, you have my wounds, you have my cynicism, you have my story, you have my emotions, you have my possessions, you have, you have me. God, you have all of me. And I, I, I can't do that for you. It's between you and God. It's between us as a church family and God to just come with open hands and say, Lord, you're here. I'm tearing the wall down. Whatever comes, comes, but I'm with you. And I can't just stay as I am. I'm in the presence of the living God. So we want to do something a little different today as we close. Communion earlier, we usually do communion right here is the culmination of our gathering. But we just sense the need this week to take a moment of expectation and surrender. So I just want to invite you, as Hannah plays, just close your eyes with me. If you feel comfortable, just kind of open your hands. Just as a posture of openness to God. Sometimes our bodies worship in ways that lead our mind and our hearts instead of the other way around. And so we open up our hands just as an expression of surrender, as an expression of readiness to receive. songs we sang today spoke of revival. 
Lord, you don't revive what we haven't let die. What we've not allowed to be crucified. And so, Lord, where there are attitudes, where there are places of hurt, woundedness, that have allowed us to put up walls between ourselves and you as we worship, even walls between us and other people, may you give us the courage to let those go. And may we as people, Lord, may we as a people, as, as a community, as a church family, like in Exodus chapter 33, it says, I don't want to go anywhere where your presence doesn't go, God. May, may we be that people of the presence where when the presence of God moves, we move with it. When the presence of God is here, we run to what he's doing. We join the work of God, not only in us, but around us. Where I pray for expectation. I ask Holy Spirit that whatever flesh barriers, whatever opinions and fear of man and all sorts of things, Lord, that, that always seem to distract us, worry about what people will think about us, opinions around us, would you by your spirit remove those so that we could see you more clearly, so that our hearts could be focused on you. And Lord, I pray for a spirit of surrender. God, may this be in us one step towards a renewal, a revival coming out of so many difficult years now, God. This is a move of God's Spirit to bring life where there was death, to bring wholeness where there was brokenness. God, to restore called as a community to be restorers and so God that flows out of the restoration you do in us and so Holy Spirit whatever you're speaking to each of us as individuals as we just let's sit and listen to what you're saying what you're doing Lord we just pray and ask for revelation and renewal in us just take a few moments and just listen to what the Lord may be speaking to us right where we're at.
don't ask for a spectacle when we come before you, but like a good father, you just want us. You don't want a presentation. You don't want bullet points brought to you about how we've earned the right to be here. You just say, come. And so in our weariness, in our need, like Mary, we find ourselves right now at your feet in worship. God, you are worthy. You are worthy, God, of more than just songs, more than services, more than activities, more than mission, more than all things that we do. You are worthy of it all. So we pour out our hearts to you, Jesus. in your name.